the world of popular music and culture, in terms of longevity, daring, breadth, and diversity of projects, he has few peers. From being the frontman for legendary new wave band and video pioneers, Devo, to a prolific film and TV composer whose credits include Thor Ragnarok, The Royal Tenenbaums, Pitch Perfect 2, Happy Gilmore, and The Lego Movie, Mark Mothersbaugh has left his own unique imprint on the world of audio and video media. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, I had the privilege of sitting down with Mark to discuss his singular career, which has spanned five decades. We discussed the musical influences and visual aspects of his groundbreaking band, his thoughts on the creative process from both a collaborative and solo viewpoint, the role that technology has played over time in his work, and the transition he made from rock legend to celebrated film composer. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're super busy. And, and as you mentioned, just right before we started, you've got a, a big party for Devo uh, scheduled there at your studio tomorrow. I, I can't believe it's been it's been like uh, about 50 years, I think, really, since Devo got started uh, in Akron. And um, the early days, I would say, and, and I think you've, you've said this in some interviews before, but that, you know, you mentioned that Devo really started more as an art project than as a rock band, or it seemed like that was kind of the intent. It was, it was, it was much more than just a rock band, but like really it was an art project and, and really kind of a social commentary uh, project. And you mentioned that the early 20th century Dadaists as influences, but were there other artists or innovators who've been particularly influential on you then when you got started and then also, you know, now as a, as a composer in film? Well, yeah, you know, lots of people. Yeah, I learned about the Dadas at school at Kent State, and um, I, I kind of thought if I could ever live in another time, it would be in the 20s and 30s, you know, in um, Europe, because I, I loved all of those art movements that had manifestos. I really liked that. I thought that was great. And, you know, there were different groups that had different things they, they concentrated on. I think, uh, you know, even through the years up, upwards and even backwards, though, you know, it's people like Eno mm-hmm. uh, was an influence for, for me personally, because I was looking for ways to um, create sounds that reflected what was going on in our culture and that, was, that were relevant to what was happening in the world. And I was using synthesizers. I, w- I was doing things like Sun Ra, like, like playing them like this so they were so I could get you know explosions and caveman sounds and also futuristic ray guns and and uh but then also Vietnam you know V2 rockets I mean mortar blasts and and uh explosions and things like that and also just kind of paying attention to commercials and listening to some of the silly sounds they had or some of the different things where they where you'd go oh I what's that you know and and so yeah, a lot of people influenced us. Um, Captain Beefheart in- influenced uh, Jerry and Bob and me quite a bit. Uh, Jerry was coming at it from more like a blues background. He was in a blues band mm-hmm. when we first met. And I was looking at Beefheart as this guy who was doing this beatnik poetry, mm-hmm. you know, over top of um, very interesting sounds and music that were definitely like, I thought, okay, well, this rock and roll is going to be over now after, you know, you know Zappa and Beefheart and, and all these other people I was hearing that I, that, that I thought were 
you know, really making big changes. Um, you know, the, the, the Italian futurists were an influence. What really kind of uh, made me think I need to come up with new sounds for this time because they were like, even in the 20s, 30s, they were saying the contemporary orchestra does not have the sounds required to, to, you know, like properly make music for an industrial society. And so they were adding in, you know, like a electric fans with a, with a, you know, like a, a playing card make it so go and they were, they were, Using fog horns, and they were they were using atypical instruments, and and uh, I love that. And I thought, yeah. And in my culture, we've got technology now, so we have synthesizers, and it just really made me think about it that way. Ballet mécanique, I think, had a big influence on Devo um, because of their geometric um, outfits and their shape, the shapes of things. Bob Mothersbaugh found a picture in a little Lulu comic of a space alien and he was wearing a, a cancellator helmet and it was basically a devo hat with ear flaps and um i kept drawing it through the years i i used to draw pictures of devo on stage in kind of very geometric shaped outfits and at the same time jerry was working at a janitorial supply company where he was helping them put their catalog together and so he was seeing all these things like hazmat outfits that you could buy for like three dollars and 85 cents a piece Mm-hmm. So we were looking at all that, and I, I was drawing pictures of like a diva with that red hat on it uh, years before we actually made them. So there were, there, you know, those were all kind of influences. I, I still have a, you know, if there was a time period I could have, I could go back to and uh, and be a part of, it would be Europe between World War One and World War Two, the art scene there. So you know, a couple of thoughts there. One, you, you listen to the music it's actually pretty complex stuff, you know, and, and obviously, you know, you guys really blew up in the, in the punk and new wave scene. And there was so much um, emphasis on simplicity, but like I was listening the other day, I was listening to timing X off a of duty oh. the future. And I'm like, you know, the, the time signatures are just insane. And I'm like, I, you know, and you mentioned Frank Zappa. I was like, you know, this could be something that Frank Zappa would have played, you know, just that that's just a crazy time signature and the constant changes. And, and, you know, so it's like, I think that especially now when you go back and listen to your catalog, at least I, I have a greater appreciation of the complexity and how forward thinking the music was, you know, in the context of like a quote unquote pop song. But then also, you know, the, the visuals, right? And uh, I mean, you guys were so daring with your visual identity at a time. I mean, it was like ripped jeans and, you know, maybe in safety pins was like the, the, you know, really pushing it, of course. But I mean, you guys took things to an entirely different level with the costumes and the videos. How did that develop? And, you know, what informed that creative process? And, you know, I know Jerry, for instance, is a video director, but like, were all the guys on board with doing the outfits and, and things or were there any oh, yeah. person yeah. where people are like, what, you want me to dress like a potato? You know, I mean? uh, there was none of that. Um, Bob Mosebaugh made, he was the first one of us to direct a film. He wrote and directed a, a short in high school mm-hmm. and it was uh, Chuck Statler who came and visited us. And uh, I think it was the winter of 74, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he had a copy of, um, 
popular science and on the cover was this young couple and they've got this silver 12 inch what looks like an lp but it's silver you know like 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 uh like if you got a platinum album or something but mm. and they're like happy and they're going like like they're dancing or something and um it says laser discs everybody will have one by next christmas and we were like laser discs and we started reading about it and we thought what a great idea you know what if 45s had visual and sound you know if it was you know we love that idea of, of uh, sound and and vision, you know, both on one disc or, and the same with a, an album. And so we actually thought we were designing material that would end up being on laser discs, you know, when when we came out. We, and um, of course, laser discs, for whatever reason, it's not important at this point why they, they broke down, but we still kept making films. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had art backgrounds. Chuck Statler directed our first film. Uh, he, he said recently, he said, well, I'll tell you, says, I remember Jerry saying, I don't understand what Mark's trying to do with these crazy sounds. And so I thought, well, I better record what they're doing now because it probably won't be here next year. So <laughs> he said that's what he, and, uh, but, you know, it was, it was my two brothers and Jerry and I were the original Devo. Mm-hmm. And, um, my brother, Jim, he uh, was our first drummer and he probably invented one of the very first electronic drum kits ever. And he, he went on to like circuit bending, you know, uh, a lot of our gear, a lot of my stuff, a lot of, you know, like the synths and things. He, he fiddled with them so they weren't just, you know, off the, off the rack synthesizers. He, he, he made them do things that they wouldn't have done when I asked. I said, I told him what kind of sounds I was looking for. And mm-hmm. he was really into that. And, and the band back then, that was probably the most pure art that we were in our whole history of, of Devo we, in the early days. And it was like, you know, we imagined being the 1975 version of Cabaret in like Vienna or, or France mm-hmm. back in the 20s. Now, um, I've got a couple of uh, audience submitted questions. Uh, so this first one comes from Brian Burkhart of Oakland, California. And Brian uh, writes, I read somewhere that Devo was the first to use MIDI in a live performance. Is that true? What were your creative and technical challenges and how did you work through them? Okay. You know what he's referring to is in 1981, Mm-hmm. we were like, man, everybody's copying us. They're all doing films and they're terrible. They're, mm-hmm. they're calling them promo videos and they're terrible. You know, what do we do to stay a step ahead? And we decided, Jerry and I said, you know what? We're going to do live films with our songs and we're going to be in them on stage. We decided on, in 1981, we, we made a stage, we designed a stage that was 10 feet deep mm-hmm. and only had spots coming from above our head. Mm-hmm. And right behind us was a, like, I think it was like 25 by 50 foot screen that we put rear projected 35 millimeter film on it. And there was no such thing as MIDI yet in 81. It wasn't worked out yet. You know, other people like Laurie Anderson and Michael Jackson and David Bowie had all kind of like run films while they were on stage. Mm -hmm. It was always soft, you know. We played to a click that was an audio click that Alan had to count perfectly or we would have been screwed up for the whole song. Mm-hmm. And um, he did. He was, he was like a little mechanical timekeeper. He was, he was awesome. We'd play to a click so that if I'm singing um, 
about uh, out of sync and it's it's and there's robot girls dancing there's robots dancing on behind me mm-hmm. and they're all in the same movement but one of them's out of sync dancing where i could just point backwards with my hand and I'd go boom like i was shooting a ray gun or something and you'd hear we'd play a synth on stage and, went, and because alan had counted everything perfect every night the robot exploded perfectly in time. Mm. Uh, we had a song called Speed Racer where mm. a doctor, uh, a girl, and um, a, a pirate all come out on stage and sing 15 feet tall. They, they just wandered out on stage behind us and they sing totally in sync with Devo, mm. uh, with the song. And so we had their, their voices pre-recorded and they could just do their voice you know, to that. And, uh, you know, like the, the pirate at one point, he's chasing us around the stage mm. and he starts kicking us and we would just fall over and it, it worked really great. It's like from the, from a, like a big concert hall, mm. you know, it, it looked pretty good to see us reacting to that. And people loved it. It was, Man. It was and that's what he was referring to. But, it's, but you get confused with Mitty because my brother, Jim, at that point, he was no longer the drummer. He was so obsessed with electronics and things. He he went over and he started working with Roland synthesizers. Mm-hmm. And he was part of the, there was a group of technicians from all the different uh, music uh, equipment manufacturing companies in those days that all came together and developed MIDI and came up with the um, the protocol and, and what MIDI was going to be and what sacrifices to make and what things to hold on to and so sometimes that gets talked about and at the same time. And so that could be why he said MIDI. Wow. That's pretty awesome. And it's so cutting edge, you know, and it, again, I think over time now, because of how amped up technology is, we kind of forget like, you know, in a predominantly analog world, you know, stuff like that was just so groundbreaking and, and it's kind of mind blowing. I mean, it's still really cool, yeah. of course, but you know, I think people maybe lose some appreciation for like, the hoops you guys would have to jump through to pull something like that off in 1981. You, you know, um, MIDI and, and things like MIDI mm-hmm. radically changed popular music and what it sounded like, you know, because all of a sudden you could connect all these. It wasn't like you were crawling around on the floor, plugging in analog modular synths together to, to get a sound. It was mm-hmm. like all of a sudden it was very easy. You could use one keyboard. You could be playing five different synths, uh, 10 different synths. 127, actually, to, to you know, if you wanted to, mm. it was a very amazing tool to come up for artists, and everybody loved it. Oh, that's awesome! Now, with Devo, you know, as a band, it was a collaborative, creative process. Whereas in soundtrack composition, it seems like I'm assuming you're much more—it's a solo contributor type of role. Now, that may be oversimplifying things, and I, I won't pretend to know everything that goes into scoring a film but can you talk to the different dynamics and speak to the pros and cons of each you know collaborative versus solo composition you know the pros and cons of each in terms of creative exploration yeah i write a lot of music for me Mm -hmm. and i never play it for people i play it for myself and it's you know it's like something i want to listen to while i'm just hanging out at home and and i'll write my own music and but with Devo, we were two sets of brothers from the beginning. You know, it's like when my brother left, uh, Bob Casale and Alan Myers came in. So there were there were two Casales, two mothers, bonds still. And um, we were used to collaborating. And, you know, we were worried about people in the band, like 
like I wrote the most music in the band and rather than have it where people were like, you know, like when you watch the Beatles thing and you see, you know, all the bitterness between George Harrison and, and the other guys, cause he didn't get to contribute. We decided early on, we're going to split the publishing five ways so that it would give everybody, you know, like a, a reason to want to collaborate and to want to give input. So like, you know, even though songs might say, well, you know, Mark Mothersbaugh wrote the music and the words, or, you know, maybe Jerry wrote the words and I wrote the music or whatever, you know, the reality was everybody was working to help make that song work. And they were rewarded by getting, you know, one fifth of the publishing, which was really good for us. So, mm -hmm. so I always liked that. And that made it actually easier for me to be a composer because you know, on almost every project you work on, it's, it's the most common thing is a director shows up and usually the director is the one who has been um, pioneering this project or he's been, the, you know, he's been the person that's been trying to get this done for like, it might've got, it might've been five years between the time he first read the script or decided I want to make this movie to the time that they come to me and say, okay, we, we've got a rough cut to show you, or okay, we've got a script you can read. So there's still, you know, collaboration. And so I, I just feel really comfortable with it because I'm used to working that way. And for me, it's interesting to listen to people talk because music is so abstract to talk about, you know, yeah. uh, when you, when, you, if you're trying to give somebody direction, like what to write, you know, it's like, you're like, oh, he's done 20 films already I this is my first one how do I tell him what to do or what I want and you know it's like I'm so used to people just saying you know make this you know like uh sadder make this happier make this make sure that that you know you focus on this character in it you know or or you know it changes between two people and so you write themes and you write music to so that you guys can collaborate and and for me I I, I love that job. I find it intriguing. Actually, what I really love more and more all the time is writing music for games. And I'll tell you why. With video games, it's a whole different process because, you know, you're writing music for these different levels. Mm -hmm. And unlike a film where you watch it one time through and you may never see that film again, you know, you may have only seen Thor Ragnarok once. Maybe you see it a second time, you watch it on TV again and remember it. Uh, but a lot of times people only see a, a film once where a game, especially the first level, a game player is going to hear that music a thousand times, maybe. Who knows how many times they're going to play the game. And the first time they hear it, it might take them 20 minutes to get through that first level. So you want to make the music in that level really great and something that you would want to listen to for 20 minutes, too. Mm -hmm. or longer. And, you know, of course, you know, then it also has to be plastic or flexible so that you know by the 20th time they play the game maybe they're only there for like 30 seconds before they bop on to the next couple levels and then they get to the new challenging one and then there's something in the way that you listen to music for a video game that is more like writing music than any other medium i think and <laughs> what that is is because you know ratchet and clank or whatever and and they're doing something on whatever planet they're on mm -hmm. and it starts off very simple and maybe it's just like a one instrument one tone and it's like quarter notes or half notes even slow and then it's slowly building and then maybe what happens is in that 
know, he, he finds something that he was looking for and it, and it gives him more power. And then you bring in the woodwind section and they're playing something, a counterpoint to, to the first piece of music. And it's much more like writing. It's like, you know, when you write a song, you don't, you can't play all, you know, all the instruments at once, mm-hmm. uh, especially orchestral, you know, you can't play a hundred instruments at one time. And so, so you're putting them on one at a time. And, and so people that are playing that game, they experience the music kind of more similar to the way a composer writes music than in pop songs, for sure, where you just hear the finished piece and then you get later on, maybe there's some remixes and it gives you ideas of breakdowns and stuff of the song that, mm-hmm. that you know, give you clues into the song and what it, how it got to where it was and what the intentions are. You know, and then, you know, then as each of these instruments add up, finally you get to the end of all the instruments and maybe the first time you heard them all, it took 30 minutes to get to hear the whole song. Mm-hmm. You know, then you start over on another level with, you know, one instrument and it's probably a different instrument. You're doing a whole different, you know, depending on uh, like Ratchet and Clank, we were going to different planets. So, you know, mm-hmm. we looked for different, you know, like a totally different feel for different planets and, and uh, so I really like, I, I love games, you know, writing music for games, to be honest with you. Now, um, our next audience question comes from Vince uh, Maluski of uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, Vince writes, Devo was definitely groundbreaking in their approach to music. Since creativity always seems to inspire criticism, how did the band keep focused on their style of music in a culture that was not always accepting of it? I remember at first, um, like our first review in um, Rolling Stone magazine, we got attacked because there's even a song in there that doesn't have a guitar. And they were really pissed off about that. (laughs) We're like, oh, I thought they would love it that we were doing something totally new. And, Mm -hmm. you know, after, you know, our first setup, it was interesting because, you know, in Europe, it was totally different. You know, we uh, sounds Melody Maker and NME, New Music Express, they 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 were they came out every week in England, which was really cool. Big fat magazines all about music. Mm-hmm. But they had the style where it was a build them up, knock them down. So their first interviews were great. And like we were on the cover of Melody Maker with mm-hmm. David Bowie's head in the corner. On in that cover, uh, Bowie said, This is the band of the future. And that was a pretty good <laughs> thing to have, you know, the first time you're on the cover of a, a big music magazine in, in London. So, so, but then, you know, a couple months later came the knock them down part because they need to keep talking, you know, and so, because they have to fill up these three big magazines every, every week. And so, so they, it was a lot of good stuff. And we, we charted in like at least a, a half a dozen countries in Europe with the first album. Mm-hmm. Uh, un- uncontrollable urge was number one in Yugoslavia. <laughs> you know, satisfaction was in the top ten in England, and uh, because of that, we got to play on the Old Grey Whistle Test. Mm-hmm. And they still didn't know who we were in in the U.S. except at like K Rock on both on both coasts, and and college radio played Devo, but we were not on real radio until with it. Wow, wow, wow. So, um, you know, as you're and we kind of start looking at, you know, a little bit more at your, uh, your film composition aspects of your career, you know, was there a learning curve when you started composing for film? 
you know, what have you learned from that over time as far as like film composition and, you know, working with orchestras and trying to like bring a, a director's vision to life through music and stuff, you know, what did you have to learn to kind of get, get there? Oh, a lot of things. I mean, when I did Pee Wee's Playhouse, mm-hmm. uh, they were filming it in New York and they were doing their final, they were doing their edits and their mixes over there. So I just got a, a rough take and then I, I wrote music for all the parts and sent it back. And it wasn't until the end of the, of the first season, I think there were like, in those days, there was like 13 episodes would create a, a season. And I just remember that I talked to the, um, the picture editor that was putting the whole show together at the end. Uh, at, at the end, once he had all the, all the sound effects and all the pictures and all the music and all the dialogue. And he goes, I, t- I always had a question I wanted to ask you, Mark. Why did every cue come to me with leader in between? And how come you didn't use time codes so that you could uh, play to, you know, in total sync with the picture? And I remember saying, what's time code? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hadn't gone to school for music. I, you know, I, I think anybody that, that wants to get into composing, you could save yourself a couple of years of uh, trial and error if you, um, if you <laughs> go to m- music school first. Mm-hmm. Are there any musical artists you would have liked to perform with? Oh, gosh. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, there's things that at the time I thought, oh, I don't want to work with them. Um, after one of our shows in, in L.A., this guy named Burt Backrack took us over to his mansion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, late at night and we're in there and I'm like, wow, this looks like Adam's family would live here or something. And, and he's like, Hey, what do you think about us doing a song together? Do you like my stuff? And I go, I was trying to think, and I go, I like this song, a uh, little red book. And he goes, yeah, you know, we should do something together. And then, but you know, I just, I, I wasn't cool enough to like do that back then. I mean, I, I mean, and what we would have done would definitely not have sounded like what Elvis Costello did when he worked with him. And, mm-hmm. and you know, at another time before our, I think it was right after our first album came out or just before it, mm-hmm. it was freezing in Ohio. And Richard Branson called up and said, said, hey, how you guys doing? Do you want to come down to Jamaica? And I'm like, Jamaica? I've never been there. I, I, I've never been anywhere, you know, warm, except, you know, my dad had loaded my family into a station wagon and drove us all around Mexico a few times and where we would just, once we got tired of driving, we'd stop, pitch a tent, the family would sleep in a tent on the, on the side of the road in Mexico. And then we'd get back in and drive. And he, he picked all these places to take us to that were awesome. Bob Casale, that morning that he called, I woke up freezing in this living room of somebody's house. We didn't have homes anymore at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And Bob Casale was sleeping in uh, what was like a greenhouse off of the living room. And the window had blown open during the night and he was covered with snow hiding <laughs> under this cover. So when Richard called us and said, do you want to come down? Bob and I were ready to go. Jerry, I don't know why he didn't go. Bob Mothersbaugh and Alan Myers were um, wrapped up with some women that they were Bob Mothersbaugh was going to marry this woman eventually. And I think uh, Alan, I think they were married already, but uh, they were with their girls. And so Bob and Casale and I said, we'll come down. So we flew down to Kingston and he took us to this hotel where, and I just remember, you know, Richard saying something, I'm going to skip to the end. He said, he said, well, Johnny Rotten's down here and he's in the next room and he wants to join Devo. 
If you don't want to go out onto the beach, we can make an announcement. I, I've flown in New Music Express sounds and, and Melody Maker reporters that they'll take pictures of you guys shaking hands and uh, we'll talk about this new collaboration, you know, because he had heard that we loved the Sex Pistols, which I did. And we saw them there last night that they played in San Francisco. And they came over to where Devo was staying, was, which was a, uh, just some newspaper, Search and Destroy, their, their newspaper. We just slept on piles of Search and Destroy magazines because there, there weren't really beds in this, this place. I just remember looking at him I said, well, you know, maybe what Johnny should do is kind of instead of being, you know, like a, an anarchist, he should totally flip over and be a corporation. He should, he should be Johnny Rotten Incorporated. And um, that's the last thing we talked about uh, with, with that. And, you know, there became, you know. Public image. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, so there's other people, you know, I could say, you know, Beefheart, I saw him rehearse a lot because he rehearsed at, at a house where one of the Go-Go's uh, lived and some other people. And, and that was near where I lived, so I could walk over there. Mm-hmm. And I watched them rehearse, and I just thought, oh, I wouldn't want to be in his band. Because he, he told everybody what he wanted them to do, but he had no musical terminology. So he would, like, make movements, and he would yell at them, and he would – and they would – it was – it was kind of sweet because they all were trying to do what they thought he wanted to do. And after he left, they'd be going, you didn't do a good job at all with that bass line. Yeah, that's not what he was looking for. And they go, you don't think so? And they would they go, but you're drumming. I think he liked what I was doing drumming. And it was like, it was kind of cute, but, you know, I don't know. I don't. So, you know, there's, I don't know. I guess there's probably people I'd love to work with. Mm. Cool. So our, our next audience question uh, comes from David Smith of Leeds, United Kingdom. And David asks, is it clear when a piece of work is finished? Is there a temptation to add another track or re-record a vocal? Are you typically satisfied when you say something is done? Okay, here's my feeling about that. Mm-hmm. Our first albums, we'd written almost all of the songs while we were still performing live. Mm-hmm. And that gave, I think that was a way of writing music that I think really uh, was good for Devo. I think it was like kind of the best way to write music for Devo was like, because we could try them out in clubs and then we changed things, we modified them. And it happened over, you know, songs would have a couple of year gestation period instead of, you know, like we just wrote an album, we got three weeks to record it, go, you know? And um, there's a, there was a lot of stuff. Like even I remember hearing Whip It the first time I heard it in a club. I remember sitting there going, why did we use that hi-hat? We should have used the other one that was sitting there. That would have sounded so much better. I remember things like that. And we always, you know, like were critical of our music. And even to the point where uh, when people started covering our stuff, I remember like hearing things and going, that's really, that's a good idea. I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> some of the things, you know, and, you know, it's like when you play live, though, afterwards, you have the, the, the ability to change it. Like if you listen to a live show that we've done in the last 10 years and then listen to albums from 25 years ago or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. you'll hear changes. And, and I think the live stuff is almost 100 percent of the time uh, superior to the to the records. Hmm. Now, is there a specific film you wish you had been able to compose a soundtrack for? 
Like for instance, a classic from a bygone day. Well, you know, I'm a big TCM fan. So, cause, cause what happens for me is like, um, I've done so many television shows and so many films, mm-hmm. I don't know, 175 different TV shows and films mixed together. And, and it's like, I go home at night and the last thing I want to do is like, I start watching a movie. Mm-hmm. I go, why did he use, why did he use oboe there? That's, that doesn't make sense. That, that's not strong. Or I'd say, why did that cue keep going on and on? That's irritating. You know, I, I can't, separate it but when i watch black and white somehow i go back into my childhood or even back into my 20s where i used to watch movies on black and white tv Mm -hmm. i can go into that that state you go into when you watch a film and it's much easier for me so i watch old movies all the time and i see all sorts of movies that i think could use a better score and there's some that i just wish i would have been part of you know it's like I have movies that are that are dear to me for the soundtrack. And I think Clockwork Orange, for instance, may have been one of the most impressive soundtracks to me. I thought that was so incredible. I love that. With modern films, yeah, there are, you know, there's ones I wish I I wanted to score, Idiocracy, for instance. And I I thought I thought for sure he would go, oh, Devo should be scoring Idiocracy. And, <laughs> and he didn't. Oh. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to score um, Back to the Future and, because Devo played this show at the Palace in, in uh, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And after the show, Steven Spielberg was there and he came up with Robert Zemecki and they said, hey, Mark, we want to talk to you. We thought you guys are great. I want to talk to you about this, this uh, movie we're doing. And I'd already been scoring things. So I was so excited. And he, and, uh, he sent me the script and, read it and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is perfect. I would love to score this film. And I got into his office and they said, okay, I'll tell you what we want. We want you to, we want you to be the character. There's a, a professor in this film and we want you to be the professor in our movie. I go, well, no, you mean you want me to act? And he, he goes, yeah. And I go, oh, I don't know how to act. And he goes, no, we watched all those films that you were showing before you went on stage and we watched you on stage. You're such a great performer actor. I go, I go, Oh, I make that stuff up. I don't, you know, that's not somebody else's stuff. I, everything I do, I make up myself. And I just remember, and they just looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) And, and um, I left and I just remember going, Oh man, I thought they were going to ask me to score their film. And I remember being (laughs) so disappointed and, uh, so you missed your chance to be Doc Brown, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, is there a composition you're most proud of, or is there one that's most indicative of the Mother's Boss sound? No, because you 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 change with life, and life brings all these different things to you. And I understand that uh, a lot of artists are are you know they they do have a brand that's very recognizable as what they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, especially when I got into music uh, bands, they found a sound and they stuck with it. And Warner brothers fought with us. They wanted us to stick with the sound. Mm -hmm. And then by the, and then when whip it happened, they, they, they were all over us saying, Hey, do anything you want on your next record. Just do another whip. (laughs) Oh, we, I gotta say, we didn't do that to be a pop song. So, you know, I don't know how to, I don't really know how to, to accomplish that, but 
for me, it's like it would be a different song for different times. You know, it's like, um, you know, when I was working with Wes Anderson mm -hmm. uh, uh, on this one film, uh, Royal Tannenbaums, there was a there was a scene in it where, you know, Angelica Houston and uh, uh, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Royal Royal Tannenbaum. They're walking through Central Park and. It's long after everything's long done between them. And she's got a new boyfriend, Danny Glover, you know, and and uh, but, you know, she's she goes for this walk and he's being for the first time that since she's known him, he's being super complimentary. He's being really you know nice and he's like noticing things. And he's like he's like the way she wished he would have been, you know, like 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. 25 years ago. and um but you know it's too late for it but he doesn't recognize it but so the music i wrote for that was kind of kind of up and and uh you know it was optimistic the next film uh you know and wes used to take music that i wrote i'd write sketches of just from reading the scripts and mm -hmm. he'd wear headphones and he'd you know he'd listen to the music for you know timing out the shots that he was shooting he would listen to the music for tempos and things like that and energy intensity. Yeah, when he worked on um, Life Aquatic, uh, you know, there's a scene where Bill Murray pops his head up into the screen. He says, let me tell you about my boat. And, you know, Bill Murray is like a loser version of Jacques Cousteau and, mm -hmm. you know, and his ship that, you know, they, they haven't made any good movies and he's kind of, you know, <laughs> funny, you know, but you know but he did keep the kitchen in tip-top shape and the kitchen has all modern appliances but but like the the sound man and the, the composer and the cameraman they all have outmoded equipment you know so so he's but he's going through the boat and he's telling he's talking about it you know in a really positive way and and Wes says you know I want it to be something like when when Angelica and and Jean were were in Central Park you know yeah that cue scrapping and fighting Wes renamed every every cue i ever wrote no matter how good the names were he renamed every cue that was one of his things because it was his movie yeah and I, I, yeah, <laughs> it was so great but so he he was playing scrapping and fighting while while he was watching while he was filming let me tell you about my boat and so he said he wants something like that and so i wrote him something and then he like went yeah, I like that, but it's, uh, yeah, it's not quite, it's not quite, you know, as good as, you know, like uh, fighting and scrap, scrapping and fighting. And so then I wrote him something else mm -hmm. did it again. And at that time in my life, I was making, I was making artwork I called Beautiful Mutants. And I was taking photographs. I started with my family and then people I knew, and then it broadened out, but I, I was taking photos and I was like flipping them over so that you would have a symmetric, perfectly symmetrical head. Mm -hmm. I found out that when you do that, humans have a, 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 every human, even you, there's a side of your head that when you make it uh, symmetrical, you might look younger, cuter, like a really nice guy, happy, mm -hmm. angelic, any of those kind of things might fit you. And the other side is going to be darker, brooding, maybe demonic, maybe monstrous, you know, and, and it's interesting I, that I became really fascinated with that. And I was living at home. So I was making this family of characters and putting them all over these rooms mm -hmm. and I was splitting things like that and doing symmetry. And, and, it, you know, I came back from, you know, writing music for Wes and him saying, try it again. And I was thinking, Oh, I do. And he, he likes, 
scrapping and finding. And I, and I took the sheet music for scrapping and finding and I held it up to a mirror mm-hmm. to reverse it. Mm-hmm. And I started playing it and I said, wait a minute. So I took that music <laughs> and for, for, for scrapping and fighting and mm-hmm. I played it backwards and used the instruments instead of using, you know, the instruments from Scrapping and Fighting movie you know, from uh, Royal Tamworth. I used the instruments I was using for Life Aquatic. And I rebuilt that so that it played forward. And I played it for him the next day. And he went, that's it, Mark. That's perfect. <laughs> and I was like, kind of like, do I tell him he already owns that music or do I just wait till after we record it? So right now he loves it. So I don't want to do anything that he <laughs> Wow, that is genius. That is so genius. It's just a wild thing that uh, that somehow worked out, you know. Oh, that's amazing. So um, I've got a, another audience question. This is from Michael Basil of Redding, California. And he asks, how has the progress of technology influenced how you've worked? And what impacts have you seen on your own compositions and career? And he goes on to give an example. For example, you know, as we've gone from a, a small number of tracks on a single tape reel, in a fairly small physical studio space to easily transferring 128 track studio quality recordings internationally with very little waiting, you know? So how has that kind of inspired and your, and how has it changed your, your performances? Well, it's, it's really changed everything in, in amazing ways, both good and bad, mm-hmm. but it makes me at the end of the day go, this may be the best time ever for, somebody to say, I want to be a composer or I want to be, I want to write music because it's never been easier Mm -hmm. or, or more, it's never been more democratic. It used to be, you had to write a song, somehow get a record company, A&R person to hear it. And then they have to say, all right, we pick you to do an album, you know, and that's how it used to be. And now, you know, a kid can have an idea or, or just, be playing around and then create something mm-hmm. and you don't even have to worry about a record company. You can just put it right on the internet and you can have thousands of viewers, hundred thousand viewers in, in no time for no money. And technology just has good and bad things. I mean, you know, when Devo started, we had like a four track TAC amateur tape recorder mm-hmm. and we got used to recording on four, one instrument on four, each of the four tracks or stereo mix for the drums mm-hmm. and, maybe putting down a bass and a guitar. And then I'd mix those four down to two again. And then I'd have two open channels and I'd put probably vocals and a lead instrument on it and then mix that down. It was obviously more difficult, but that's what the Beatles did when when they started off. And what I found out later is it forced you to make sure you recorded exactly what you wanted the Mm -hmm. first time. And once we started getting into multi-track and then once, you know, like, you know, Pro Tools and, and computers got involved. Then it got into this thing where like that bass doesn't sound exactly right. Well, put another one on top of it. And then, yeah, it's not there. Well, try one that's a little more staccato. And then you'd have this mush of bass sounds that none of them were the right bass sound, perfect bass sound. And um, same thing with synth sounds. You know, you go, oh, that's not exactly, well, just double it, triple it, you know, and guitars and everything. And so you had to be, you had to learn to be careful. There was a long period of time that, we overproduced stuff, I think. There was a couple albums where you really hear it overproduced and um, it was a learning curve. Now it's like, I, I know better. And, you know, it's like, um, I resist the temptation to, to put a 
80 piece orchestra on something if I know that I can do it with a, a string quartet better. Hmm. I got two more questions for you. The first one is, do you ever look back on your career and body of work and kind of marvel at how things have played out? You know, I'm pretty lucky. I have to say that because, you know, when I started off in music, I had, I never thought about being a film composer or a TV composer. I thought, no, I'm just, you know, I was an artist and that's, I, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of money or terms of work or, you know, or, you know, cause I was used to like painting apartments to pay for, for my apartment. And then I would have the evening that I could go to the TAC four track and record. And um, yeah, I do marvel. I think I'm a real, I'm really lucky because there's, I just had the right set of elements that made me fit in at the right time. I, I came along at a time when the entertainment industry was shifting over from using all live players to they were interested in electronics. And I knew them well. And I loved, I'd, I'd written, you know, you know, I'd already had a little bit of experience because I wrote uh, incidental music for Devo mm -hmm. concerts, you know, like music to play before or during the show, you know, like even in our first video, the Chuck Statler film, I, I took and, and scored uh, like the end of it, where I took a Beatles song and then ran it through a ring modulator and, mm -hmm. um, Made the, but it was Muzak to begin with, and it was kind of like, kind of like this weird sci-fi Muzak. By the time we got done, you know, somewhere early on, I don't even know if we. I think we'd done an album by then, and um, Dean Stockwell asked me to score uh, an off-Broadway Ionesco play that was a one-man play that uh, Russ Tamblin acted in. So I wrote, I scored that that one-man play, mm -hmm. and then. His next project was directing a film for Neil Young called Human Highway. Mm. And he gave Neil Young my, my score from the, uh, the play. Mm. And Neil listened to it. And they used that to be about half of the underscore for, for Human Highway, besides Devo performing in, in the... So I had a little bit of you know, experience then with scoring by the time I, I did Pee Wee. Mm. So, but, but I just was, you know, I was learning on the job, definitely constantly. And, you know, you say Rugrats and Rugrats to me, I, I think of it in a really, I have really fond memories because it was this guy, Gabor Chupo, who had, you know, like he was a Hungarian who smuggled, who was smuggled through in a, the trunk of a car across the Iron Curtain. And then he came all the way over to Hollywood to make films. And he, he paired up with um, Arlene Klosky. And they made this great combination together where he, he like made the, the Rugrats characters look like tumors and, and <laughs> weird limbs that were kind of grotesque, but cute at the same time. And she put the heart into the show. She, she worked on the story and made sure the story was mm -hmm. heartfelt. And uh, they, they were very complimentary in that way. And he, he called me up. He collected uh, art music. You know, he collected esoteric music and he had found an album I'd done in Japan, because I used to go to Japan in the in the early mid '80s, and and I would uh, write music or produce art bands over there, like Plastics and Hajime Tachibana, people like that. And and um, he heard this album I'd done with a label called Tokyo Radical Artists, and it was called Music for Insomniacs. And uh, I put a gold metallic cassette, and then a and then a, a deck of cards that had photos on each card. 
Yeah. Uh, that you can play cards till you fell asleep was the idea. Was the concept. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and so he said, hey, can I use one of those songs for the theme song for our show, Rugrats? And I said, well, I've scored TV before. Can I see what you're doing? And I said, let me write you a new thong- song. And so I, I wrote the theme song for Rugrats, and then that's how it started, and then scored the show. And But what was really great about that show for me is it was like uh, Nickelodeon had never done a feature yet. So mm-hmm. they didn't know what Paramount, who was the company that was going to put out the, the movie, he didn't, they didn't know what they knew, what Paramount knew, was that don't hire a guy who's never scored a, an animation feature film with a full orchestra before you know that's that's dangerous but they like they were artists and they went no he wrote all the music for our show he's going to score our <laughs> film. so it freaked out the people over at paramount but somehow i had some people uh including bruce fowler who i think at one time he played with uh zappa but he was now like really into the world of scoring and he was like one of the the, the foremost brass players and he offered to help me uh, orchestrate my music so so mm. when i wrote pieces out he go okay mark now see you know that lead line you have there it's a flute but right there at the c flat it's going to turn into a piccolo so we're gonna we're gonna when i write the orchestration the piccolo will be up here the flute will be here it'll work perfect and you know i had people that were orchestrators on that film that really helped me out and by the time i i went to uh to uh record it in london mm-hmm. it's like um I'd learned a lot. <laughs> uh, so, but, so that's, that's, and so Rugrats helped me, um, they helped me break through the catch 22 where before that I would only get to do films where it had like a small band, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, like Wes Anderson size bands, you know, like 12 people, you know, maybe 16 people playing. And, and uh, so Rugrats broke through that door for me. Oh, that's amazing. Cause I, I can, I, you know, I, I often wonder, it's like, how do you, as a composer, as a symphonic composer, how do you determine like what instruments play what part of it? You know, when somebody sits down and writes something out on a piano and then it suddenly becomes like a hundred piece orchestra, it's like, how do you determine who gets what part of that musical pie? So and I'm, I'm sure trying to learn that, but it's great that you had, that you had Bruce there as kind of to mentor you and kind of help you see, Oh yeah. Okay. Flute piccolo. Okay. That's where I make that split. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, because I could read music, but I'd never written it out longhand. Mm-hmm. I'd always just use, you know, in a band, you write down chords on a, on a piece of paper, and then you show them to the band, and they all know what chords to play, and then you start talking about parts, and you don't really pass out sheet music, per yeah. se. And then, yeah, and <laughs> um, then by the time I got into scoring, computers mm-hmm. were already were there to save my life and so i could write into a software like i used something called vision at the time that mm. doesn't exist anymore uh, before logic and then you know it gave you a way to use your keyboard and go right into um into sheet music you were like playing the notes onto the sheet music so that was that's how i was allowed to get into that world you know because i i didn't study it in school and um ah oh, that's amazing. So my last question for you is what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, uh, in my case, I, w- I would say pay more attention to the business because I was totally an artist and I made mistakes that the band was, it became irritated with. Like, like because of me, we were on both Virgin Records in Europe and Warner Brothers Records in the U.S. You want to know why that sounded great to me? 
Hmm. Besides Richard Branson was the same age as us. I thought that was amazing because he sang the Sex Pistols and he's put out tubular bells. But, you know, it's like um, I was just thinking that what was so great about it is that we're going to design one album cover for the U.S. and a totally different one for England. That's so awesome. I get to design two album covers. And, <laughs> and if we put out two singles, that means four single sleeves instead of just. And so I love the idea that we, you know, because that was something that always fascinated me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. If you've got like, you know, like a Beatles album in the U.S. that was different than the Beatles album in, in England, and you'd be like, huh. Why did they do that? And then you'd have twice as much. You'd almost want to just like buy them. If you had the money, you'd buy them both so that you could like mm-hmm. look at all of it to get all the clues and information to, yeah. to what was going on. So I stupidly got our band into a, a two label deal and um, it cost us a lot of money at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah. But you know, when you're young, but that would be, but that, and the other, the only other thing I would say is, is something I kind of, I kind of did adhere to it, but I would give it to other people is don't doubt your vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, because there's so many people that want to destroy you that you don't even know it. They seem like they're your friends and they're not. Mm-hmm. There's so many reasons why you shouldn't be able to, you know, recognize your vision or have it come out, you know, and you got to just be strong, you know, and, and that's hard for a lot of people. It's hard. I understand that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you so much for this time. I mean, what a, what a treasure and I really appreciate it. It's just fascinating. And like I said, you know, I mean, you've had just a remarkable career. It's just been a real treat to sit down and, and hear you share these insights and also some thoughts on like what other innovators and creators can take to heart and, you know, what they can learn from. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. And, you know, if you want to do this again tomorrow, I'll probably have totally different answers for you. Oh, excellent. We'll do part two, the sequel. (laughs) You just asked the same question.